This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. Hope you're well this afternoon, this Monday afternoon. Today, the state's largest corn producer is about to start planting a carbon project on his farm at Jinjin, so around 80 kilometres north of Perth. Jim Trandos says shoppers are increasingly asking questions about carbon footprints. This generation of uh, kids coming through, that's going to be some of their methods of purchase. So, you know, everybody's pretty in tune with the environment, you know, especially this next generation coming through, and they're just going to expect it. And the supermarkets are eventually going to be asking, what, what are you doing about your carbon footprint? It's going to end up happening um, anyway. You'll take a look around Jim's place just after news headlines at half past 12 today and also taking a look at how to calculate your carbon footprint if you grow grain. That too after half past 12 today. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. Virulent foot rot has been detected here in Western Australia. The Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development says it's detected the reportable disease in a ram imported from the eastern states. Neil Cups is a mixed farmer in the Chapman Valley Shire. He took delivery of five rams in October. And last week he was told sheep on his property have come from a property with a confirmed case of virulent foot rot. He's been placed under a pest control notice and is waiting on test results for his rams. Well, we got a phone call from the uh, Department of Ag in Mora the other day to say some of the rams we purchased in South Australia have been near sheep down south somewhere and uh, they could be tested positive to foot rot, which I'm a little bit concerned and a little bit doubtful about, but never mind. We'll have to run with the, uh, with the tests they've run and we'll see where we go from there. When did you get these rams? Purchased them in uh, August at an auction there and uh, they were trucked over in October, delivered by the stud breeder uh, on property. And what did you do with them after you, you got them from the stud breeder? Confined them in the yard on feed. Our local farm vet come out, done a liver fluke and foot rot check and he said they were all good at that stage. So normally that would be all clear, you can do what you like with them, you can put them with the rest of your mob because you've done your biosecurity stuff after you've had the vet, yeah? That's, that's correct. And so, so did you do that? You put them with your... Yeah, I put them out with the, my other rams I had adjacent to the yards and uh, we're flushing them at the moment ready for joining. Doing the right thing, I've put them out there and given them the same treatment, but... I very quickly pulled them out and put them back in the yard under surveillance on feed just until we get our results back. When did you get word that there was something amiss? Last Thursday. I got a phone call. Wednesday, sorry. And Thursday they came up and took the, the samples. And we're just waiting to see what the verdict is at the moment. Hopefully all clear. What do you have to do? Well, if it's positive... We'll have to foot bath them for five days in uh, sulphate of ammonia with zinc and 
they've all got to be standing in the tub for five minutes every day for five days. So every day is two hours to do them. In terms of while you're waiting for those results, what other impacts are there to your farm business? Well, I'm placed in quarantine at the moment. I can't move stock anywhere off the property where those rams are. I've got to probably supplementary feed some of them until I can get all clear to put them where I want to put them by trucking on other farms. The foot bath for five consecutive days. You're in the middle of harvest. We're sitting at the corner of a, a paddock on your property about to move some gear to, a, to another job. How did you feel when they said you explained what you needed to do? Well, it's a wonder you didn't hear me from uh, Geraldton because I just absolutely went bonkers because uh, the the time involved in the labour, extra labour I've got to get to do that job and plus all the hand feeding of the flock I've got to shift by stock truck. It's just blowing things out of the water a bit. Are you happy to do whatever it takes to avoid getting this disease on your property? I am because it's it's more serious than a lot of things if we only know, if anyone knows what foot rot is. It's, it's sheep, we had it here up this way in the 80s when we had wet seasons and that and people had to get rid of their livestock through slaughter and it's once it's contaminated it's a big job. Your neighbours had to get had to slaughter sheep? Oh, they weren't neighbours, but they were in the district and uh, it wasn't, wasn't much fun for them. They trucked out a lot of sheep to the abattoirs. There's a levy on every animal sold in Western Australia that goes to a control pl- program for virulent foot rot. Are you happy with how that money's being spent and the response from the department to get on top of this? Well, I would have thought this case would have been picked up long before it was. Yeah, I'm not really aware of what goes on at the checkpoints. I do believe the studs have got a, in the other states, have got to um, swab all their rams and test them for foot rot, liver fluke, all that, all the brucellosis, you name it. I think the stud breeder's done his bit. Uh, He told me he was clean. So where it's come from, we're a bit confused at this stage. Is you don't believe that your rams have been on the truck with a contaminated ram? Well, I don't think so, but the department have only got to do their job to nip it in the bud as far as I'm concerned. They're, you know, they're up front, they're coming out a look, and uh, that's how it is. Chapman Valley farmer Neil Cups speaking to Lucinda Jose about... Being caught up in the sheep tracing exercise Deep Herd is currently conducting after finding foot rot somewhere here in Western Australia. And on that point, we just heard that Neil saying that he thought the foot rot case would have been picked up earlier, given that he took delivery of the rams mid-October. Uh, we did contact Deep Herd asking for an interview And again, no one was available to speak to you here on the Country Hour today. The first request went in to Deep Herd on Friday, asking for an interview. The answer was no. Again, today, the calls were made to hear what is Deep Herd doing. Uh, Give us an understanding of that work that's being done, that traceability work. Again, today, the answer is no. Is that good enough? 
when virulent foot rot has been found here in Western Australia? Do you want to hear from Deep Bird? Hear what's going on? Uh, let me know what you think. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. That is the text to have your say. Thirteen past twelve. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. News headlines and a look at the weather right around Western Australia. Not far away at half past twelve today. First, though, Western Australia's Lands Minister has defended a new diversification lease that could soon be available on pastoral land. The Land and Public Works Legislation Amendment Bill 2022 was introduced to State Parliament last week. And one of the key aspects of the bill is the introduction of a new diversification lease, which has been criticised by some pastoralists who believe it will only benefit the really big operators. But Lands Minister John Kerry thinks overall it's going to be good for industry. So this is about creating a new form of tenure that can coexist with native title interests and the mining sector, but provide for a different range of land uses. So this is unlocking crown land. It might be for renewable energy. It might be for tourism. It might be for conservation. It could be for carbon farming. There's a whole number of different uses. Uh, and this is really ultimately about trying to diversify our economy. That is, you know, the signature reform as part of these changes. There is some concern from the pastoral sector that this lease, this diversification lease, is inaccessible to the average pastoralist given the costs associated with full negotiation of native title. What would your response be to that? Well, look, I mean, this is a choice and an option. And I want to be very clear, we're not forcing people to do a diversification lease. And of course, we also have diversification permits, which do allow some flexibility under the pastoral system. So I would argue that this provides another option for the pastoral sector to maybe negotiate and engage with a renewable energy provider, uh, with a tourism provider. It could provide another source of revenue. So a pastoral owner may not be the actual holder of the diversification lease, but they may decide to enter into an agreement. Uh, So it's not for everyone. And we understand that there are many efficient pastoral businesses which won't necessarily be interested in this. I suppose pastoralists have long been trying to diversify their businesses up here in the north, and it is quite difficult. Are there any other options that the government is looking at to make diversification easier for your average pastoralist? The overall changes to the Act are really also about providing certainty and security. One of the messages has been about modernising the Act so that existing pastoralists, that we can provide a better system in place. So, for example, one of the key benefits to pastoralists in the new bill will be their ability to extend their lease term up to 50 years prior to expiry. So what that means is that will provide greater certainty about potentially then looking at other projects. But we do have a diversification permit and we're making that system better and more efficient as well. One of the other criticisms of the lease is that there was a bit of a missed opportunity to align the amendments with the Commonwealth's Native Title Act, which does set out some activities that can be performed uh, on Crown land. What would you say to that? Look, I do think that's 
unfair. I mean, the reality is uh, this has been a significant process and we wanted to make sure that we engaged all sectors. I mean, I want to be very clear that our agency's been out there. I've been meeting with key stakeholders. We actually had a briefing day at the Perth Convention and Exhibition Centre where over a hundred diverse groups from multiple industries attending. So we wanted to make sure that the amendments that we're making, and I want to say this, that I do genuinely believe provides greater clarity, greater certainty, and improves the system. These reforms are beneficial to pastoralists. There has been a lot of movement in the pastoral lands management space lately. You know, within the last week or so, we've seen uh, changes to management at El Cuestro um, and we've got this diversification lease that's uh, been introduced to Parliament. What is your vision for pastoral lands in Northern WA? Well, look, I think the pastoral industry is a key part of our economy and it does also play a critical role in the management of a significant component of Crown lands across Western Australia. But I do see a really robust and strong pastoral system into the future. Lands Minister John Kerry speaking to Steph Sinclair about a new diversification lease for pastoral land. Minister Kerry says he expects the amendment bill will be debated and passed through Parliament in the first six months of the new year. 18 past 12. Well, Western Australia will soon have some new Aboriginal cultural heritage laws as well. These laws have been a long time coming and are due to take effect around the middle of next year. And just last week, the federal government said it was going to overhaul its own legislation soon. As you heard in the news, Rio Tinto and traditional owners of Jugan Gorge in the Pilbara have been in negotiations for more than two years before finally reaching an historic agreement. So I'm sure Rio and other companies are wondering how all these changes to Aboriginal cultural heritage laws will affect their mining activities. Jack Cullity is a lawyer and director of Mining and Heritage Legal, and he's warning mining companies and others to start planning now. The new regime is really quite different to what we've had over the last 50 years. It's a lot more process-driven and there's a lot more uh, hoops uh, that miners are going to need to go through to show that they have um, complied with the legislation. So there's going to be um, you know, a lot of documentation required, uh, a lot of consultation, and I know miners uh, are often keen to do that, but you know, that's going to be, um, for a number of them, a change to the way they do things uh, in, in terms of their systems and processes. Do you think industry as a whole or in general is prepared for that and aware of some of the changes well, I think in my circles, people are coming to understand it. I think they're aware of it, but I don't think that they're across all of the details and, and the things that they're going to need to do and potentially the time that it might take to get prepared so that you know they're, they're able to, to meet their timelines um, and also the expectations of, of shareholders and stakeholders. So is it a case of planning now to avoid... I guess, pain in the future. That's correct. I guess specifically, do they need to start planning for what What would you like to see? Well, I think they need to really start thinking about uh, the due diligence assessment process um, and what that looks like. There will be a tiered approval system 
based on the risk of harm to um, areas of cultural significance. So I think there's going to be, you know, a lot of process around that. You know, one of the other key issues is going to be managing the risk on, on ground with employees, contractors, subcontractors um, and all of the people who are involved because essentially the liability for causing harm goes straight back to directors and management. So that risk is now um, very real and the penalties are significant. When you say risk, do you mean managing risk of potential damage to Aboriginal sites in mining areas? Yeah, correct. And and really just, just adopting that best practice um, around uh, engagement with traditional owners um, and ensuring that you know there are activities on the ground, um, there are processes in place to you know if they do encounter uh, heritage, you know what are their processes, how educated are their people on the ground, so that they're very aware of where they're working, um, areas of significance, and and the processes and procedures if they do you know do encounter uh, cultural heritage. If that preparation for the new laws isn't undertaken, do you think that could have a negative effect on productivity? Well, I think I think it will because the approval pathway now is you know is is more involved. So if they're not aware of it um, and they're not consulting early with groups about uh, the new act and starting to talk about those mechanisms, there's a risk that you know there's a period where you know where things are not moving as quickly as as they should. Is this an issue for the major players in the industry alone or do the junior miners need to be considering this as well? Well, I mean, very simply, the Act applies to anyone who is undertaking activity anywhere in Western Australia. So it applies to shires, to, you know, property developers, to explorers, to the biggest miners. So everyone needs to understand it. Everyone needs to develop processes um, and procedures for how they engage and then how they record that engagement and then you know, how they um, ensure that, that they are protecting heritage. Lawyer Jack Cullity speaking to Tom Robinson about new Aboriginal cultural heritage laws. This is the Country Hour. It is 23 past 12. And this on the text from Peter who says, if the minister wants to argue for something, how about converting the leases to freehold which then allows better financial security, the ability to buy, sell and borrow against to further develop. And if there is native title areas, convert them to freehold so traditional owners can buy, sell, borrow against to manage their land their way, says Peter. Do you agree? What do you think? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. That is the text if you'd like to have your say this afternoon. 24 past 12... And the nation's best shearers and wool handlers competed to be the best in Australia in Bendigo over the weekend. But just getting there was the challenge for many of them. The New South Wales team had to dodge floodwaters and came by boat, car and even helicopter to make it to the competition on time. Wool handling manager Georgie Rangi Hayata says it was a stressful exercise. I had a novice wool handler that travelled from Geraldry. Usually takes about, um, you know, probably about four hours or so to go all the way to Gill. They had to go a nine-hour trip right around Orange, come up through that way, 
Uh, she was saying it costs over $900 in fuel, and, she, and that's one way. And she couldn't make it to the nationals. You know, it was really sad because she's a, she was a senior wool handler. As for one of my other novice wool handlers, Char, uh, Charlie Baker, he's actually from Inverell, and they had to fly him. When he rang me, he says, um, Georgie, we've just been flying in by chopper onto one of the properties in Weewool and I'm not sure if I can make it and it's, it's, it's alright mate you know you just let me know when they fly you out so that was a week later I think they flew him out back to Inverell and they were flying shearers and shearing teams all out on choppers to properties help farmers for animal welfare issues yeah, right? yeah. absolutely so to get competitors here you've had chopper flights you've had huge detours you've got people who are literally getting out of islands um, due to being surrounded by floodwaters all to to come and compete that's extraordinary and you know really these guys had no work for three weeks. They lost their whole income. Uh, so, you know, I was going to fly down to um, from Dubbo to Bendigo or, or Wagga to Bendigo. But in the end, um, I had problems with the car, my car, due to mud driving and muddy and, you know, ripping my sump, or not sump, uh, splash cover and, and then tyres you name it, <laughs> potholes, giant potholes. So it's what we do, but in the end, we just sort of pulled them together, knowing their finances tight, and says, like, OK, we'll just feed each other and, and look after each other that way, or accommodation. You know, it's, it's uh, pretty hard. Uh, there's some really good points that you raise there too, George. The idea that... Um a lot of people see shortages in shearing and, like, you think, oh, everyone's making a fortune in this industry. It's, like, you need the work to keep happening and, and wool handlers aren't being paid extraordinary amounts of money as well. So they're going to want to keep working even when all of this weather is, is meaning it's almost impossible to get around. Absolutely correct there. Um, the saddest thing is, is that, you know, there's a struggle of shortage of wool handlers. You know, it's great that the shearers are looked after, you know, and they're doing really well. They're, you know, shearing a lot of good sheep out there, but there's some, you know, rough ones out there as well. But for the wool handlers, especially experienced ones, you know, I believe that they should be paid more. And they'll come. They'll come back to work. You know, they'll come out of retirement and have to. You just pay it and they'll come in. It's such a blessing as a wool classer to have them, you know, come in and they're so happy. You can't um, burn out your good staff. And that's what's been happening. Mm. They think, oh, yeah, experience wool handler. She can handle four by herself or two for four. It's mm. ridiculous. And you've got to have the numbers. Wool handlers are the lifeline to the farmer's income. Without good wool handlers, who's going to skirt and uh, present that wool at a world market? He, you know, the farmers rely on the wool handlers. To make farmers. them look their best. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's all about the income check, of course. And, and without that, more stress on the farmers. Georgie Rangihayata, who's the wool handling manager with the New South Wales Shearing and Wool Handling Team, catching up with Warwick Long and just talking about the challenges trying to get through those floodwaters to participate in that event at Bendigo over the weekend. Uh, Not easy by any stretch. This is The Country Out. It's 28 past 12, just before the news at 1 o'clock today, taking you off to Mushay for the results of the cattle market 
and we'll get all the details on the yarding and the prices for you. And also just having a look at carbon footprints very shortly here on the Country Hour, the state's biggest corn producer is getting into it in a big way with his carbon program about to get underway. And then also how the grains industry sort of came up with a calculator for you. So if you do grow grains, you can figure out exactly uh, how much carbon is coming from your property and what you might like to do about it. It goes into all the different aspects from sort of the the fertiliser on your property, the uh, fuel that's being used. There are quite a number of... Um, different things you need to consider when you are making that calculation. So we'll take a closer look at that shortly. And, of course, off to the Bureau of Meteorology in a moment and we'll go right around Western Australia looking at the conditions today and then over the next four days. It is half past 12 here on The Country Hour. Jonathan Beale is here now. What's making the headlines, Jonathan? Thanks, Belinda. In the headlines, the Federal National Party has confirmed it will not support a constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament. Party leader David Littleproud says the Nationals consulted with regional communities across Australia prior to reaching its decision. He says the party does not believe a voice to Parliament will close the gap on Indigenous disadvantage. The PKKP Aboriginal Corporation has reached an agreement with Rio Tinto following the destruction of ancient rock shelters in the Pilbara. Chukun Gorge was blown up by Rio Tinto in 2020 so the miner could access higher grade iron ore. The corporation says under the agreement Rio will fund the Chukun Gorge Legacy Foundation which will provide education and training opportunities and give traditional owners more say in discussions over cultural heritage. And the Premier Mark McGowan says he fundamentally disagrees with those who have accused his government of not properly addressing issues with the youth justice system. The government has committed $63 million to upgrade Banksia Hill Juvenile Detention Centre after holding a summit to discuss issues with the facility last week. Some who attended the meeting, including child health expert Fiona Stanley, described the outcome as disappointing. Morning's Belinda at one. Jonathan, thank you so much for that 29 to one. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. And earlier in the hour, you heard that virulent foot rot has been detected here in Western Australia. The Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development says it detected the reportable disease in a ram imported from the eastern states. And you heard from Neil Cups. He's a mixed farmer in the Chapman Valley Shire. And he took delivery of five rams in October. And it was only just last week that he was told sheep on his property have come from a property with a confirmed case of virulent foot rot. So as a result of that, he's now under a pest control notice and is waiting on test results for his rams. Now, the country I put in a request to Deep Herd for someone to come on here and tell you what's going on to discuss it in more detail uh, with an interview on the show. Uh, the answer was no Friday. The same request sent out today. The answer again is no at this stage. And in response to that, a few texts have come through. And this one from Rob, who says, ring the chairperson of the industry funding scheme. It's supposed to be an industry run scheme. They have to talk. You are wasting your time with deep herd, sadly. Now, Rob's referring to the three industry funding schemes 
that were formed to address pest and disease threats relevant to WA's grain and livestock industries. The schemes use funding arrangements authorised under the Biosecurity and Agriculture Management Act, whereby producers can raise funds to tackle priority pests and diseases. A sheep and goat scheme came into effect in 2020, and Deep Herd's website says a 17-cent contribution on the sale of all sheep and goats, live or carcasses, produced within WA to fund programs to control virulent foot rot and wild dogs. Uh, and this too from Les Gero, who says this whole foot rot story, if it's a test run for foot and mouth disease, I think growers are in deep poo. 0448 is the text to have your say this afternoon. Uh, shortly taking a look at the uh, carbon footprints across a couple of different industries, the, the corn industry, Jim Tra- Trandos is going to get started on a, a project at his place shortly and then looking at calculating your carbon footprint in the grains industry. First, though, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Luke Huntington, with you this afternoon. Luke, take us for a look around the Southwest Land Division. Yeah, afternoon, Belinda. So um, we're seeing quite uh, quiet conditions over the southwest at the moment. Um, we do have a ridge of high pressure uh, south of the state, so it's bringing in uh, generally easterly winds, just a little bit of cloud along the south coast, but nothing too significant. And the temperatures are slowly warming up um, through the central west there. We've got um, sort of low to mid-30 temperatures today and creeping down into the lower west area and into the western wheat belt, we're seeing low 30s. And that's going to be the trend uh, coming into the next couple of days, just as a trough deepens off the west coast, we will see those temperatures start to get um, hot to very hot over the Tuesday and Wednesday period. So as we head into tomorrow, um, as I said, the trough deepens. We'll probably see temperatures approaching 40 degrees through the central west area and into the mid to high 30s through the lower west, great southern and wheat belt area. And those temperatures even getting into the mid 30s um, through inland parts of the southwest district there. So um, some hotter temperatures on the forecast uh, from really from tomorrow. I'm not expecting any rainfall until uh, Wednesday. Um, so that would be with thunderstorms. So the trough really de- does deepen on the Wednesday period and then moves inland during the day. The parts of the lower west and southwest uh, area will probably still see pretty hot temperatures along the coastline. Um, there's just some uncertainty of how, actually how hot it will get depending on when the trough does move, move inland. But it'll probably be already inland over the central west coast. So those those people there will probably only see maximum temperatures in the high 20s, but still very hot through the inland parts, um, through the eastern parts of the central west and through the wheat belt. We're still going to be expecting temperatures close to 40 and through the great southern temperatures remaining in the high 30s as well. So I did mention some rainfall um, possibly on the cards uh, due to sun due to um, high base thunderstorms but on the, on the most part we're going to be expecting little to no rainfall um, if the thunderstorms do form and that's through basically through right through the wheat belt, the great southern area and into the southwest district. There could be some isolated areas, particularly through the wheat belt and great southern that could get five to ten millimetres, but on the most part, um, maybe zero to two millimetres with any storms. So if you do get the, the, that lightning, uh, those lightning strikes with little to no rainfall, it could um, produce some wildfires, um, which we're just concerned about on that Wednesday period because there are some elevated fire dangers around as 
as well. So that's just a, a risk for that Wednesday period. And then on the Thursday, the trough uh, does keep moving uh, inland. So it'll probably be through the Goldfields, Esperance region, um, getting into Thursday morning. So that's where we'll see the hottest temperatures. Again, temperatures are pretty much close to 40 right through the Goldfields and into the Esperance area. It's still going to be quite warm through the Wheatbelt Great Southern with temperatures still in the mid-30s, but a lot cooler along the, along the West Coast um, with temperatures only in the mid-20s. But um, there is a risk of dry dry thunderstorms continuing over the Goldfields um, Esperance region on that Thursday period just as the trough remains over the area and then on Friday the trough moves um, sort of east of the southwest land division so uh, temperatures um, cooling down but still pretty warm uh, over the wheat belt area temperatures in the mid 30s. And as you were saying, some pretty hot temperatures around some parts of the southwest land division tomorrow. The city, Perth, going for 37 degrees. What sort of temperatures are expected in northern and eastern parts then, Luke? Yeah, so it's um, getting pretty hot through the uh, the Gascoigne and the uh, the Western Pilbara. So that would be the focus of the hottest temperatures over the next couple of days. Um, in terms of... Uh, well, temperature range is probably going to be sort of in the low to mid 40s uh, through that through that region, and then um, yeah, right through the Gascoigne on the Wednesday period, you're going to be looking at sort of temperatures around 41 or 42, and then um, close to 44 or 45 through the inland uh, western Pilbara. And um, as I mentioned, you've got the uh, the gold fields there getting into 40 degree temperatures on the Thursday and most likely pushing into the interior and Eucla on the Friday. And any other details then for northern and eastern parts? Um, for the northern parts, we haven't mentioned um, rainfall, so I'll just mention that uh, there's continued thunderstorms uh, in the Kimberley and through the eastern Pilbara in, into the north interior. So the Kimberley's seen some decent falls over the last uh, few days, and that's going to continue during today. So there could be some he- further heavy falls uh, with thunderstorms, uh, but it does start to ease off uh, tomorrow. So less of a chance of getting those really heavy falls. And then by Wednesday, those thunderstorms are contracting into northern and far northern and western parts of the uh, the Kimberley there. Could also see some thunderstorms through the um, central parts of the Pilbara, but they should be fairly high based with little to no rainfall. And then by the time we get to Thursday and Friday, we're not forecasting any storms for the Kimberley at all, and all, all the storms will be mostly confined through the inland Pilbara there. And then the warnings this afternoon. Yep, so we've only got one warning out, and that's a flood warning for the Fitzroy River. It's uh, currently at moderate levels uh, at Fitzroy Crossing there, but it does decrease to minor later today. Great. Thank you so much, Luke. Appreciate that. 21 to 1. Taking a look at the weekend rainfall figures now with Richard Hudson. Yeah, again, most of the rain for the whole state is in the Kimberley. So Bedford Downs Airstrip 82, Billaluna 40, Camballon 39, Curtin 10, Dampier Downs Airstrip and Diggers Rest both recorded 23, Doongan 37, Drysdale River Station and El Questro 38 mils, Emma Gorge 5, Fitzroy Crossing 65, Flora Valley 5, Fossil Downs 91, Gibb River 55, Halls Creek 18, Jubilee Downs 54, Cunanara 23, that's at the Deepherd Station, Lake Argyle Resort 14, Lansdowne 104, Leopold Downs 33, Lombardina 16, 
Margaret River Airstrip 38, Marion Downs 31, Mullabulla Airstrip 28, Mount Amherst 34, Mount Barnett 37, Mount Krause 55, Mount Winifred 140, Napier Downs 20, Nicholson 9, Old Mornington Homestead 34, Ruby Plains 12, Siddons Creek 25, Theda 32, Udiella 22, Warman and Yampi Sound both had 57, Winjana Gorge 19, Wyndham Airport 22 and Yulumbu 67. So, yeah, a fair bit of rain has been around in that Fitzroy catchment in the last week or so. So the Bureau of Meteorology has actually issued a moderate flood warning for the Fitzroy River. The details are on the BOM website. Um, in the Pilbara, Telfer recorded nine. Uh, Gascoigne, uh, no rainfall recorded. But in the interior, Carnegie, five. Prenty Downs, 10. And Warburton Airfield, 13. Nothing recorded in the goldfields. In the Eucla, Eucla itself, 14. And Forest, seven. And no rainfall on the islands. Then in the southwest land division forecast districts, nothing really worth mentioning in the central west or the lower west. But in the southwest, Acton Park, five. Bunbury also recorded five. Manjum up seven. Nanup also seven. Newbicup eight. Newlands five. Perryvale Orchard eight. Ravenscliff Alert Station seven. Yanmar eight. In the southern coastal region, Denbarker topped it for the Southwest Land Division forecast districts with 19. And Wellstead recorded five. Nothing really for the central wheat belt. Uh, but the Great Southern uh, Tunney recorded six. And just a quick happy birthday uh, call out to Corey at Kellerberon. 55 today, so quite a milestone. Happy birthday. Oh, happy birthday. It is 18 to 1 off to Muche shortly for the results of the cattle market. Going through the uh, yachting and the prices, and Terry Birkin will have the details for you just before one. First, though, Western Australia's largest corn producer is about to begin planting a carbon project on the unused, cleared parts of their farm at Gingin, around 80 kilometres north of Perth. The project will be self-managed and will use native trees. Jim Trandos from Trandos Farms says shoppers are increasingly asking businesses about their carbon footprints. And while the trees will eventually create carbon credits he also feels like it's the right thing to do. I've been looking at the, the carbon regeneration bit for quite a while now, a couple of years, trying to work out the heads and tails of it all. We've had all this vacant area around the property, which I thought was effectively a wasted land sitting between the centre pivot. So they're like diamond shapes, and triangle shapes, and they're basically vacant. They also create a bit of a wind problem as well. So looking at a long-term strategy for them was, was not difficult for us, really. And what makes it really different for you is that you are managing this in a way yourself. You're not sort of handing over the rights to this area of land to an outside company. This is something that you're really involved in, isn't it? Yeah, I spent a couple of years looking into it. I went to a lot of seminars, I researched online, spoke to some environmental companies, in March, I went down to Bunbury and Deep Herb's carbon team were, did, a, did a seminar on it. And that's really where I, where the penny dropped and I worked out the way forward. So I was talking to Kerry House and Carla Swift and the team. Their presentation was excellent and actually simplified it for me. So it went through the process. I understood the way it works or within reason the way it works, how you lodge a project 
and what to expect, what to expect before you lodge a project. And it is quite complex, to be honest. You grow vegetables. You're busy enough. Why was it something that you were keen to pursue yourself? Why not just hand it over and let someone else come in? Well, I'm not the busiest in the farm. My brother actually runs the runs the outside of the business. He runs the farms. So I had to convince him that it was a good idea and Matt, our manager. We sort of wanted to take a little bit of ownership with it. You know, we had lots of proposals where third parties would come in and do what they've got to do. But it was actually through accident, through an accident, I was at Darren Field Day and I was there with my daughter, Belle, and I was walking past a little display. A bloke had all these native native plants and I said to my brother, look, I just want to stop and talk to this guy. Mm. And it was a guy, Bill Davey, that's from Plantation Services, and that's what he does. He does regeneration. Not only does he do the regeneration, but he actually planted the, some natives in front of our properties in Jinjin. So he did the work for Main Roads. We've always commented on how good those natives grew. So for us as farmers, we thought it was great that we found someone that understood the area, understood what they were doing. So we basically have formed a sort of a partnership with Bill. We're working together, so we're going to do some of it. He's going to do some of it. In terms of the, the value proposition that it presents, you're talking about a, yep. an area of about 40 to 50 hectares. Is it worth it when you look at the, the return on investment? Uh, commercially at the moment, based on the ACU price, which is around about $30, uh, it's probably just okay, but we're not, we're not actually doing it for the money. We're doing it because, you know, we, we just think it's the right thing to do. I wanted to ask you too, you're, being in the, the vegetable industry, do yep. you get asked from customers and buyers what your carbon footprint is, yes. what you're doing from an environmental perspective? Is that a, a, a common conversation these days? Absolutely. Absolutely. All Everybody's demanding. This generation of uh, kids coming through, that's going to be some of their methods of purchase. So, you know, everybody's pretty in tune with the environment, you know, especially this next generation coming through, and they're just going to expect it. And the supermarkets are eventually going to be asking, what, what are you doing about your carbon footprint? It's going to end up happening um, anyway. Jim, is there uh, other people like yourself within the business community that are taking an interest in carbon, trying to work out what they can do within their own businesses and properties? Yeah, interestingly asked that. I'm part of an informal group of um, CEOs. I mean, a few years ago, I met Larissa Taylor in in a seminar and I talked to her about carbon and she introduced me to David Carter from Austral Fisheries. And then I realised that everybody's interested in it. So I'm part of an informal group that looks at ways of solving their problems or addressing their problems with all their in, – in various agriculture, whether that be, you know, sheep, cattle, pigs. So everybody is conscious of it. And what's driving that? Is it this question from industry about or from consumers about what you're doing environmentally? What's the, the motivating factor there? It's, it's definitely the consumers. Like I said, the, these, these generations coming through are going to expect it. It's, it's a contemporary subject. It's talked about every day. Carbon's talked about every day. It's on every second ad on TV. And I think it's just something that we know we've got to address. What is the plan? When will you put them in the ground? We've started some of the, the groundwork, so some of the clearing, uh, some of the slashing and stuff like that. And then April next year, the plants will be ready and will be put in. Before then, we will uh, lodge the project and get it approved. 
And then um, we've been getting assistance from from NAC, Catherine Allen and Kane Watson and their team. We've been working with Catherine and Kane in uh, applying for the grant through DPERB, through the Carbon Farming Restoration Program, and they'll also be lodging the project for us. And will you be out watering them and keeping the roos off them? You don't water them. No, you don't water them. So, so the planting is done in April, and so that so you can get the winter rains. And yes, vermin is going to be a challenge. So, so we'll just have to wait to see what happens there. Jim, this is something that you've spent two years looking into. It's finally coming off the ground, and these trees will take a little while to grow. But do you see it as, in a way, your legacy that you'll leave on your farm? Yeah, I mean, if it's the last thing I do as a farmer then that's okay with me. You know, the, the land and the soil has always been good to us. That's where my family's made its living for over 80 years. And it's the absolute right thing to do. And, you know, I encourage anybody that's got vacant land to have the resources to do it. Jim Trandos from Trandos Farms speaking to Joe Prendergast. And Jim is also going to be capturing his carbon journey in a video documentary. 11 minutes to one. And as Jim was just telling you, most industries are talking about their carbon footprint and what they can do about it. The grain industry is no exception. Growing a tonne of wheat, barley, oats or lupins in Western Australia emits around 250 kilograms of carbon dioxide. Canola is a little more than double that. Calculating this is one of the first steps in accessing future carbon-neutral grain markets to maybe make things like carbon-neutral beer, for example. That calculation has been completed using data from 36 cropping businesses as part of the Carbon Neutral Grain Project, which is a collaboration between the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development, the CBH Group, and wide open agriculture. DPIRD Senior Development Officer Mandy Kernow says the benchmarking exercise will allow growers to v- eventually work out how they can reduce or offset emissions. It was a hands on experience for grain producers, but also it gave us an opportunity to really tease out any differences between some of the available tools that are out there. The project tested three. One was the CSIRO's new calculator, which isn't yet available, but the other key one was the University of Melbourne-based PIC tools that uh, is an Excel spreadsheet that farmers can can download and work through themselves, particularly for a grain enterprise. It's fairly simple and every grain farmer's got a lot of the inputs at hand for their crops. We also tested the Cool Farm tool, which is a web-based one, but it does have not great emission factors in the background for Western Australian agriculture. It's a um, international tool. So it was also about comparing those tools as to what was going to be the most useful for WA grain growers. Yeah, so my understanding, those calculators, do you, what do you, you take a whole heap of data about your particular crop and then you put them in the calculator and it crunches the numbers and tells you how much carbon is produced whilst producing that crop? Is that how they work? That's correct. So you can do your whole farm and if you're a mixed farmer, you need to run it for your sheep or cattle enterprise as well and join them together. But if you're a 100% grain producer, you'll get a total for your farm. These are emissions 
given, not taking into account sequestration from soil carbon and tree planting or anything like that. So this is all about the emissions part. So you can get a total for your farm, you can get a total for each of your crops and you can get, which is really important, an emissions intensity. So that's the amount of CO2 equivalent per tonne of crops. So, for example, you can look at wheat, the average for the whole data set of the 36 farmers was just over 220 kilos of CO2 equivalent per tonne of wheat produced. So that's called an emissions intensity. The great thing about that is that you can compare it across businesses, you can compare it across countries, and that'll be the sort of thing that markets will look at as well, rather than them looking at, well, how many farms are carbon neutral in total, they'll be looking at what's the emissions intensity of that grain I'm buying. That is fascinating. So what are the major sources of carbon in the farming system that you found? The the big levers, if you want to call them that, for grains in particular, is fertiliser emissions. That's the nitrogen fertiliser emissions, so the uh, nitrous oxide that gets released. Lime is also a contributor. So lime's an interesting one because when you put lime on and it dissolves, it actually releases a whole lot of CO2 as part of that dissolution process. So we have to count that in there. Things like the embedded emissions in fertiliser. So you've bought some urea from China or down the road or whatever, there's emissions associated with with the manufacture of that product. And we need to count those. They call a scope three emission. Things like fuel use, diesel use, and it was about, it varied, but 10 to 15% of the emissions of the grain enterprise were diesel, diesel from, from you know, crop passes and things like that. The one that people often ask about is electricity, like, oh, if I, if I get solar panels on, will that reduce my farm emissions? Usually in a broadacre, operation electricity is usually only one to two percent it's a really small component compared to the fertilizer lime crop residue how you deal with stubbles those sorts of things are the key drivers in a cropping enterprise how does crop residue create carbon when it breaks down it releases releases emissions so it's all about the amount of crop residue that's there and the conditions that help it break down. And when it, as it breaks down and gets chomped up by microbes or whatever, it does release emissions and we have to take that into account. The scope of where the carbon comes from seems really broad. Now that you've completed the pilot, what are you going to do with this information? This is a, a real, really good baseline reference point for us and we now have a lot of good feedback about the tools. If you're going to try and make your cropping enterprise carbon neutral and want to participate in carbon neutral markets, so for example CBH have got a lot of inquiry now about carbon neutral barley, how they're going to do that sort of thing. Beer is the new luxury product, they all want carbon neutral beer. If you're going to do that you'll need a verified carbon audit but I don't want people to be put off by thinking, oh, they've got to go through this official audit process. It's really important to run your own numbers because then you'll see where your differences are. The key first step is understanding where you are 
and what your opportunities are to to reduce or tighten up things so you can get on that road of reducing emissions. Deepherd Senior Development Officer Mandy Curnow is speaking to Lucinda Jose. It's four minutes to one. This text through from Malcolm in York who says, are they doing data on how much carbon our crops are sequestering during their growth or aren't they interested in that? Asked Malcolm in York. Thank you for that, Malcolm. And speaking of grains, there's an update from the state's main grain handler on the harvest so far. The Chief Operations Officer Mick Daw is saying that he's really pleased to hear reports of higher yield expectations across some zones. And it sounds like a lot of farmers are taking advantage of the drier weather conditions because some CBH sites have just broken receival records. Mick Daw says in the last week they've seen an increase in daily tonnages and at least seven sites set new daily receival records. So to date, as of Earlier this morning, just under 7 million tonnes of grain has been delivered. Three minutes to one, off to the market shortly. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. The wash-up from the Victorian election, Labor retains power. What does it mean for the Liberal and National parties? Protests escalate in China. Can President Xi's COVID zero policy withstand the backlash or will the country be forced to open up? And South Australia to ban mobile phones in schools after violent incidents were filmed and uploaded to social media. Those stories are more coming up on The World Today. Off to the markets, off to Muche now, and Terry Birkin is there to go through the details. Terry, how did it go? Hi, Belinda. Similar numbers to last week with only 61 less head for a total of 2,174. The lightweight sale presented 2,060 cattle and the calf sale had 114 head. Again, a mixed outing with a reasonable offering of local cattle, heavy pastoral bullocks and a big lines of pastoral store cows. Lack of demand reflected lower prices for most categories except lighter pastoral heifers and cows, mostly for restocking. Although quality was a factor, veal steers were still down 30 cents, making from 420 cents to 542 cents, and veal heifers down 50 cents, returning 250 cents to 528 cents per kilo. Local yearling steers down 20 cents, selling from 300 cents to 502 cents, while yearling heifers sold up to 396 cents per kilo, down 50 cents. Grown steers and heifers were down 30 cents, with steers selling from 200 cents to 398 cents, while grown heifers sold up to 380 cents per kilo. Lightweight cows were equal, making 100 cents to 180 cents. Medium cows down 30 cents, selling up to 238 cents. While heavy cows were down 50 cents, returning up to 248 cents per kilo. Mature bulls were down 20 cents, making up to 232 cents. And lighter bulls to exporters and restockers were down 20 cents, selling up to 486 cents per kilo. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you so much for that, Terry. A couple of texts before the news at one. We were talking about how much Woolshed staff get paid earlier and JP at Arthur River says Woolshed staff get 38 to $40 per hour. That's better than most nurses, teachers and police officers. I'm not sure they need to get paid any more than that, says JP. Thank you for that. It is time for the news. It is one o'clock.